Find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for the latest on Ruckus Avenue Radio. What's up, everybody? You're back with the conversation on Ruckus Avenue Radio and Dash. My name is Abu Bakr Khan. And today we're out here in New York, man. And this is Midtown or Downtown? This is like Financial District. Downtown. Downtown Manhattan. Damn, Downtown Manhattan. And the offices of Mr. Ani Claire. How you doing, man? I'm good, bro. How are you? You know what? I can't complain, man. Likewise. Last few hours in New York. Okay. Time to head back to the West Coast. Yeah, I got a flight in like a couple hours. Yeah, like two, three hours. And you're jamming on this. You're a soldier. No, man. I just you were telling me that you just came back from uh, Los Angeles. Yeah. How was your time out there? It was good, man. It was. Uh, I was out there with an artist that I work with, Anik Khan, and um, just taking meetings and, and trying to figure out a label situation. And so we were like nonstop for like four days. Uh, yeah, it, it went well, man. It was BT weekend too, so it was just a mix of a lot of crazy things. But I survived, you know. I slept the whole way back, and uh, I'm back, like it, like it never happened. One thing I'm realizing about the traveling and all that too is you gotta get that rest, man. It's the only time I do get rest. Is on the plane. Though. Yeah, sleeping and eating on the plane is like I'm way more disciplined when I'm there than when I'm running around. That's so. yeah, routine and everything, figuring it out, being still. Yeah, yeah I don't, I don't mind flights at all. Like I'll, and I know how to sleep on planes, so I take that as a. I'm gonna ask your advice to how to sleep on planes, man, because it's good. Yeah, unfortunately, the advice is a first class seat. That's the problem, yeah. or a business class seat. If you could go flat, there's no way you can't sleep. That's true, man. So. Being, for me, it's being six foot seven. It's being in any other seat. It just kills me. That's tough. Yeah, I, I don't. Tough. I don't. I don't have that problem, but I don't. That's hard. I mean, you got exit rows. Yeah, that's right? one of the exit rows, man. That's it. And then also just the aisle seat. You know, I want to uh, go back to you talking about uh, the artist that you manage, Anik. Mm-hmm. Is Anik? Uh, Anik. Anik. Yeah. I remember I listened to Anik. Uh, it was on a show called Unfair and Ugly. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. He did a song called Kites. Mm-hmm. I remember hearing that. And then after that, um, I guy, the producer of this show, he said, yo, there's this guy, Anik, you got to connect with. And then a week ago, I was in Vancouver at a festival. I'm on the board for called 5X. Yep. And so I was having lunch with two really close homies of mine, Jazz Downey and Suki Pata. And then Jazz says, he's like, yo, you gotta, you gotta meet with Ani. I said, what the hell is going on? Who is this Ani guy? That's funny. So, That's so funny. Shout out to Jazz and Silky. Yeah. That's so funny. I mean, it's one of those things, man, the, the industry, quote unquote, whatever industry you're in, you know, I think that if you're doing good work and, and you're, you know, you're honest and you keep to your word and, and you do as you say, I think that travels quicker than, you know, being an influencer or having thousands of followers and um you know i grew up in an era where like i grew up before technology right i think if you're like i'm 31 so on that cusp like we grew up having to go outside and meet people and you know like kick down doors the old old school way so in that sense like you know i could have a million followers i could have 10 followers i still you know i still move the same way yeah that's the biggest exactly I haven't been posting on social media at all the last week. Like I've just been on a complete detox. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's interesting because you're doing so many great things, but you become more present as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of miss that. I think now kind of in the space that I'm in, it's like creating and documenting is very much a part of, like I look at it as an extension of my job. Um, and, I've, and I've made that a profitable extension. So like I, I feel good about it. But um, yeah, sometimes, man, I, uh, I'll definitely take that time away. Um, I remember like when we started the agency business, like I didn't go on social for like 
eight, nine, 10, 12 months. Like it didn't even occur to me because I was like, I'm focused, figure out the work. Yeah. But then when I, I realized how to leverage social to like really work for you and open up opportunities, then I was like, okay, let me, you know, let, let me try. You, yeah. I think that's the key, right? Is you're utilizing it, it's not utilizing you. Correct. Right. Yeah, I got a timer on my Instagram. Like I'm, you know, like I'm, I'm in and out as I need to be. I really don't spend too much time BSing on there. So I gotta ask, how does all of this happen, man? How does a guy from, because like, I have no idea where you're from, mm. and hearing your, your name in these different pockets, yeah. these different groups. I, that's why I wanted to even just figure out where you're from, man. How do you get into this agency world? How do you start doing things with, I believe, Chai? You're doing a lot of different things. Yeah. Where are you from? Man, I, I think where I'm from defines and creates the hunger and the, the drive to do all these things. Um, my parents are immigrants from India, from Kolkata, and that's where, you know, my seeds are, so to speak. Um, I was conceived in India and I was born here. Oh, damn. So, you know, Trump don't, Trump don't rock with me at all, but I was like, I had this strange connection to India. You know, it's always like so visceral for me, and I realized like you know I was I was conceived there. Um, so that means that your mom, should, how, do you know how many months pregnant she was when she came back? She was like she was like six, seven months pregnant. Yeah, she, was she, was, she was very pregnant. Came on the plane. Yo, it was like she was, if not, yeah, she was like five, six months at least. Yeah, like it was a thing. Um, and uh, they moved to Massachusetts, and uh, like a middle middle of Massachusetts town called Amherst a lot of like grad programs my dad was studying there and we grew up you know we grew up on on Wick we grew up in this tiny one-bedroom apartment um I tell the story a lot because I think it creates a foundation of where I'm from but we used to have this three-legged couch like a mustard yellow three-legged couch and uh, we'd always keep like a soup can or a book or something under it and growing up like it was just normal I was like oh okay yeah cool um and I found out later my dad actually dragged that couch out of a dumpster and brought it home because he was like, yeah, we need a couch. There's no money. Um, and I just always refer to that moment as like how much humility and, and like, um, yeah, just how much humility and like, and also like embarrassment that kind of like reflected on him. But he was just like, this is what I need to do. So when I think about my beginnings, it's, it's from that context, you know, like everything was very simple. It was very lean. And I think that's where I learned to, um, just make the best of what I had. So like growing up, I used to make like toys or, you know, like we would get a couple Legos here and there, but I would like make things a lot, you know, like flip things? books, like yeah. cartoons, like I would be drawing and, and I was super creative as a kid. Um, and my parents encouraged that. It's funny how, you know, your parents encourage creativity when you're younger and then you get older and no, you're stop, like, stop I want to keep being creative. Yeah. And they're like, oh, no, no, no. You know, you got to get a job. Um, but I remember, you know, that was just a big part of, you know, um, my childhood, and then I have a younger brother. We're four years apart, and um, it's just you two. It's just us two, and in, in this country, it's just the four of us. You know, and that's something that was just a big part of like you know a lot of people have extended families. Even like I learned like you know my a lot of my friends who have immigrant parents like their parents came way earlier, mm -hmm. or like they they came with friends and family. Just yeah, community, right? We didn't really grow up in that. Um, and you know, my parent, like they came like three months before I was born, if that, maybe two months, um, in the middle of a Massachusetts winter. And, you know, we just, we just were a very close, close knit unit. Um, and, and that now reflects in some of the things that we do where I'm able to kind of integrate my parents into like the chai, like, you know, come to the cafe, hang out, meet my friends, you know, meet, meet the customers, like enjoy seeing what this looks like. Um, but 
that was just like something that was instilled in us. You know, families is, is core. So I grew up in a town outside of Mass in outside of Boston. Um, in Boston, in like the in the nineties and two thousands was like early two thousands was just like a, a very white, you know, like I don't know, I mean, it was racist. When was the know. first time that you, you realized you were brown? Oh my goodness, it's so funny, man. I remember this one kid in high school, no, no, in like middle school, asked me like, he's like, yo, are you white or are you black? Yeah, and I was like what you know it just like blew my like like my mind because i was like i'm neither like how are we how are we not seen you know what i mean um first time I, I realized i was brown it was early man because in our house like we just we were very like um not conservative but it was very like um respectful of like the culture that we came up with and and we actually spent a lot of summers in india were your parents quite religious too um my mom more than my dad um I mean, we definitely grew up in the house praying and... What know, religion were you? They're both Hindu. Oh, um, okay. You know, but Hinduism is like a very DIY yeah, religion. There's so many different things. You know, it's like, it, it is what you want it to be. Yeah. And and um, that's a good and bad thing. Um, but I think we, we definitely grew up being grounded in this idea that like, there was there's a power, you know, larger yeah. than you. Yeah. And, and you, you know, have to be respectful and mindful and, and explore that side of, you know, spiritually. And when you go to India or you go anywhere in South Asia spirituality is like it's an energy that runs through the streets you know on every corner there's a shrine or a, a mosque there's or a so temple many, or, man, yeah. you know and you can't escape it you know you'll see there's voodoo on the street you know there's there's uh murals and there's it's everywhere you go so i think growing up that was just always something that i was very connected to you know and um and just as you grow up, you explore that more, you know, you kind of get into like more questions about faith and about God. But yeah, we, we definitely grew up like a, a prayerful household. You and so know? when you would go back to every summer or once? No, it was like it was like every couple of years, um, yeah. which is something that my parents like, you know, I don't know how they did it. Like, but I, I'm so like happy that they did it because we grew up like like I have friend, I have friends that, that we used to go to India and only eat Pringles, you know, the whole summer or like try to survive on like McDonald's. And I was like, y'all are crazy. Like we are eating everything, you know, we're eating with our hands. Yeah, mailbury, all that, like mutton roll, chicken roll, whatever. Like it was, it was something that we truly enjoyed, you know? So when this whole chai thing now is like, we're, we're starting to, to, you know, create a brand and a product from something. But I, you know, I have very fond memories of drinking chai in the street or drinking pale puri at the park, like yeah, eating pale puri, puri. You know, yeah. when I was like eight, six. You know, like these these memories. So like, um, just having a connection to your heritage and your home. You know, your home is something that I'm super grateful that my parents like. You know, really created that, and I think it's something that never left me. So I think my worldview was shaped by that time in India. You can tell what happens uh, when parents do that, right? And right. For myself, I had this, a similar experience where my parents took me to Pakistan multiple times yeah. as a kid, and you fall in love with it, right? Um, whereas a lot of people that actually, maybe they were born in Pakistan and came to America or Canada, they really, what I found was they didn't want to talk about it. Mm, interesting. I'm not from there, I'm yeah. from, from. It's like almost a shame. Yeah, they didn't want to talk about it. They're like, you know what, um, I, I, I didn't want to take anything from it, but for me, I really fell in love with it. Right. And it's like you're saying, it's the religious aspect of it. In Pakistan, you're hearing the azan all, all the time. Mm -hmm. and you're waking up, you're just hanging out. It's very slow-paced. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people. But oh, it's like, man. 
just having chai, like Facts. you're saying. Yeah. How many times a day do you have chai when you're there? Like right. maybe eight, nine times. Right. It's like the world stops for chai. <laughs> like y'all ain't got nothing to do. Like nothing, it's crazy. Going back now, I'm always like, uh, <laughs> I don't know how I'm gonna spend like from 12 to 4 p.m. because a city doesn't do anything. Yeah people you know they eat rice and they go to sleep for lunch it's, it's closed yes, yeah it's shut down so i always um i always kind of like take that time to detox but yeah i mean uh, to, to what you said i think we have the privilege of being born here to be like oh this is our home let me explore that knowing i'm gonna go back yeah. to a first world country and go back to my comforts you know um and i think that early on i was like you know it, when you see the uh, inequality and you see the the differences I think for me as a kid I was just like I want to figure out how I can bridge this do you, did you have someone a friend or maybe a servant or something like that that really um, humanized that for you that's a good question um, relative I think it was just like the way that we my family in India lives pretty humbly as well, right? So there's nothing really like, we're not getting chauffeured and Benzes and, and all. I do We do that now on the music side. Like yeah, yeah. I feel awkward when I land in India because it's like, oh yeah, just hop into your S550 and we're going to take you to the JW where you're going to you know take a yeah. spa and massage. And I'm like, yo, this is weird. It's super weird. And, I've, and, I've, and I've actually done it for, like I've had to do it for years because I've, I've actually like managed tours in India since like 2012. And like I've been through that experience, so I'm not new to it, but it's still weird. It's a little jarring. It's it just doesn't feel fair, you know, and and that's a whole different conversation. But um, I think for me, what it was was just like getting out the house. Like I love playing cricket, which is like super oh, random. Man. You know what I mean? Yo, y'all, man. man. Got destroyed, man. Let me tell you, I flew to London to watch India New Zealand. Oh. It got rained out. Oh, it got rained out. I was sitting at Trent Bridge for four hours hoping they start. No love. Yeah, had to fly back the next day because we had a meeting here. That, that hurts because cricket, it takes a lot of time, man. It's like your whole day is, is gone. I remember, do you remember Gosh. watching cricket when you were out here? Like, Bro, a it's, it, your whole day is over. It's all night. It's, it's like, like I woke up at 6 for India, Pakistan, yeah. and I was like I was like in and out of sleep, but I got watched the whole day. It was like 4 o'clock when it was done. Dude. And I was like, yo, I got to get on with my day. It's, it's a weird thing. It just even quickly on that, I remember as a kid, my aunts and uncle, they'd all come to my grandma's house. Like Everybody would show up. Yep. Everybody's sitting there. Yep. Everybody's like... Yeah, like people are making some food, and then you're just like, everybody's, oh my god, he hit a chukka or a chukka right. or whatever. Right. It and it's on. It's a full night, man. It's crazy. Ruckus Avenue Radio. Funny, funny thing about cricket is, so I went to India, I remember when I was eight for the 96 World Cup. Oh, damn. And it was hosted in like the subcontinent at that time. It was like India, Sri Lanka, Pakistan. And I remember watching cricket and being like, it's the first time I've ever seen brown men in, th- in an athletic, competitive, yeah. aggressive context. And it kind of, it changed, like it warped my view because I was like, yo, this is dope. I'm a huge basketball fan. I'm a huge baseball fan you at that age. You anywhere else. Bro, you, all we do is drive cabs and work at, you know, convenience stores in the U.S., that. right? So when I saw that, I was like, yo, this is crazy. Wait, hold on. I never thought about that till right yeah, now, too. It's, it's interesting. Tennis, no. Football, no. Basketball, no. Nothing. No, like, no global sport, really. Tennis, we had, like, Leander Pace and, and you know, that there was, like, a duo in the 90s that played out, but, like... Nothing. Vijay Singh, Vijay Singh, like, yeah. man, he doesn't even claim it. <laughs> I mean, like, what are we talking about? So cricket was the first time that, I've, that I'm seeing, you know, brown men, like, kicking ass. I'm like, yo, this is dope. 
you know, and then there's like this whole like anti-colonial streak where India plays Australia, oh you God, know what I mean? Like, yeah, come on, God. of course. <laughs> so, so that it's it's weird. And then you come home here and like people like cricket you mean like the bug yeah no one is paying you know what i mean so i actually taught all my friends that i grew up with how to play cricket in, in, uh, in massachusetts so i brought everything back bro i brought everything back i we just shot a uh, a merch line like we shot a video for anik and because he's doing cricket jerseys as his new merch okay. and all the bats and balls and everything in that are from our mind Oh, so like I brought all my stuff. I was like, yeah, let's, so yeah, man, it was just this thing. Anyway, um, super sidetracked, but no, no, that, that's um, interesting, man, because the cricket is it's taking over the world. Slowly yeah, and now I'm like, because now India's coming to play West Indies, and they actually have a, a match in Florida. So I'm, sure? yeah, I'm. If you want to go, you let me know. I'm definitely going. <laughs> I'm about to get my tickets now. I'm definitely gonna go. Um, so the, okay, so going back to that now, it's like as a kid, you're going to India, you're seeing yourself everywhere in a sense, you're seeing brown people, you're seeing brown skin, you're seeing, right. like you're saying in the sporting field, coming back here though, like you're saying, that doesn't exist. Mm -mm. So what was that like for you? I, you know, and it's crazy, but I always felt out of place. I always felt like an outsider. You know, and I didn't harp on it. Like, I wasn't, like, this weird, like, sad kid in the corner. Like, you know, my friends group, my friend group in middle school, high school, like, I had every, like, I was cool yeah. with everybody, you know. And, and I, you know, I, I would be in a rap group with, you know, my rap friends, and I would be playing soccer, you know, with my other friends. And I was just, like, a chameleon in a sense, so, you know. Yeah. But I definitely never felt, like, super comfortable or at home for a very long time. And it wasn't until I came to New York where I was like, okay, this is like, I came to New York with that intention of like, let me be in a place that's more reflective of the things I believe in and how I move and, and let me let that kind of like, let me map my life around, you know, that instead of always feeling out of place. Cause yeah, man, Boston is not, it's, when I grew up, it was just not like accepting. You know, I, I had so many like racist incidents as a kid that like, my parents don't know about because I'd just be like, All right, let me just keep that away from them, you know? And, and you know, you, you, I don't harp on them. I don't like hold them close, but you, but you remember them, you know, and you, and you always have a sense of like, I will always be the other in this, you know, in this scenario. And y'all always going to see me as a brown person, which is cool. Yeah. And uh, if you know what to do with it, you know, but you, when you're surrounded by it, you're like, yeah, I feel lost. I, you know what? I had many similar situations mm. arise as well. Yeah. The moment that I knew what to do with it was when I, I realized the power of knowing your, your history. Right? Seeing the fact that the African-American community, their history had just been like cut. Mm. They didn't really know how to get back to Africa mm. or where to go. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, systemically they were just like, yeah. Just like yeah. And yeah. Indigenous people as well, where they just cut it, right? Um, so that's where the moment I went to Pakistan, you know, and then mm -hmm. I went to India last year, mm. and I said, "Whoa, right? There's so much more to that right. than you know what? Right. It's like I'm from Canada, mm -hmm. and I right? Think that really helps you give you more depth. That's interesting. You realize it's like, it's, it's yeah. like a superpower, but it's just it's a beautiful, no, it's a beautiful I, thing. I think it is. I think I think it is. Um, I think it is a power because you understand like yo, where I'm from is popping. And my people are popping and my food is popping my cult my fashion is you know like all these things that it takes a while because you almost want to reject them when you're here right or you want to like find a way to to pretend like oh not that doesn't exist um but yeah i think travel and that's why travel is like really big for me to this day because i think it helps 
bridge and create understandings that you're not going to have if you're just in one spot. When you were in India, though, like, did you, because as an American, were you kind of, like, perceived as the other there as well? Yeah, of course. I mean, that's part of the play. That's part of the script, too, right? And and you can't be like, oh, no, I'm from, like, I'm yeah. cool, guys. Like, Because they still kind of look at you. Oh, American, 100%. Right? 100%. And I think... Um, I think it's worse now when you're a little bit older and you got your, you know, you got your things together and people look when you step out the house, they know you're not from there. As a kid, it was like, uh, that's where I was going with the whole cricket thing. As a kid, I would play cricket in the park. Like I just convinced my mom, like, yo, please let me go. And I'll just play with whoever was that's playing. That's how you become homies. That's how you get respect. From you life. know what I mean? Exactly. It's it, it. But then you realize like, yo, these, these kids is like half my size, but they'll beat they'll beat you up they, like they're, they're cut from a different cloth bro exactly yeah. and then you realize like yo it's not a game out here you know it's just like it's just kind of like it's like playing ball out here exactly you play ball exactly. out here in, 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 the, in the streets yeah it just it just cuts you a little bit differently so um I think being an outsider but I think it's how you wear it you know like I just I'd step out the house in some chuckles and you know like my shorts like I was just regular I wasn't trying to flex or anything like that and I think um I think you just have to wear that. You know, you know, you acknowledge your privilege, and you know people are gonna treat you differently. But if you speak the language, you know, if you know what you're, if you know how to move, like it's the yeah, best you can nice, do. Yeah, you know, and being real with them. Too. Right, right. Because uh, some of my best friends, again, man, that, that those are my memories. When I was 13, I was I was a bowler. Mm. Yeah, I had the long arms. Yeah, you got the height, yeah. yeah. The height, and then spinning the ball and okay. everything. Okay. Okay. Like I learned all that. Dope. Um, but. They were just they were just good people, man. Right? I got uh, there was a lot of bullying too when I was in Pakistan. Mm. They called me Alam Chenna, which is like this really tall guy. And interesting stuff like that. So it was uh, it was interesting because you're confused. You're like, wait, even here I don't fit in. Right. Even there, and and then I remember recently it was like I was watching something, and actually it was Hercules. Okay. <laughs> I'm a big Disney guy. Man. Interesting. Okay. But Hercules says he says when I was a kid, man, I would give anything to fit in, anything. Mm-hmm. And now he's like this big dude, and he's living his dreams and. I think that's what it, it was like. Yeah. You just really wanted to fit in. Yeah. But then once you start realizing all this, you're like, screw that, man. Yeah. I ain't trying to fit in. Yeah, I don't... I, I think it's... And I don't say this in, like, a, a negative way, but I think there are uh, certain people, f- like, from where we come from who have made every uh, effort to fit in. And I think as you grow... As you get older and you kind of create your own identity, you see these people who are almost, like, rejecting their identity to fit in. And when you're younger, you're like, ah, cool. Like you made it, and you got accepted. You know, like you white. Like you, 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 you got the white girls. Like you made it. Yeah. You grow a little bit older. You're like, bro, what are you doing? Why? Yeah, why are you you're why, just saying you? Why are you doing that? Yeah. That's not even like, like you're doing a disservice. You know. And so that's the funny thing is, I knew I never fit in, and I never, you know, I never really tried. Um, and if it was anything that I was fitting into, I, you know, I like I looked at hip hop culture as like my way out so to speak as my identity because it was like you know you were able to relate to people who were oppressed or people who were you know marginalized and felt like they needed to use their voice creatively to tell a story um, and there we go another music is starting to come in I wanted to take a quick uh, yeah, second break yeah let's do that this let's is the conversation on Rockets Avenue Radio Dash and we're going to be right back huh? I'm trying to open this window too while we at it hopefully it's not too late What's up, everybody? You're back with the conversation on Rookie Avenue Radio and Dash. Look, man, right before the break, you were telling us about how hip hop started coming into your life um, as you're going through these transitions, trying to figure stuff out. Um, what was the first song? Do you remember the first song you you listened to for hip hop? Because I remember for me. I do. What was it? It was um, "More Money, More Problems." That was the one by Puff and and Big. Yeah, man, that was. I was like, yo, this is 
the coolest thing I ever heard. I was like, how do you how how did you make it do that in the chorus? Yeah. Um, I just remember that song. I remember. Um, funny enough, I remember my this is like fifth grade. My my boy hands me a, a cassette tape. I just dated myself, and it says like, do not listen in public. It, like it just looks like I wish I, I gotta pull this up. It's like the most like secret society looking tape ever. He's like. There are swears like do not like yeah, it was yeah. just this whole thing. I was like, oh he's my, out for you. yeah, I was like my bro, my he's looking out. Let me pop this in a cassette tape. It was um, Beastie Boys' "License to Ill," which is like I don't even you know like a lot of people my age probably never even started that, but that's like one of the first tapes that I consumed front to back, and I was like, yo, what? Like this is ill. My dad would always play Beastie Boys in the car. I'm like, what the hell is going really? on? Really? Yeah, that was a big oh my thing. My goodness, man. your dad is popping. Yeah, <laughs> my dad used to play the Beatles in the car. The Beatles too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. See, I had a whole weird upbringing of like I remember driving to Seattle as a kid with my dad, mm. and he'd be playing like George Michael, or you're playing um, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones. They would sneak out and go to Rolling Stones concerts. And Beastie Boys, then NWA. Wow. So they were, that's why I, it was weird, but I had this upbringing as a kid. Yeah. Where my dad's like singing um, Bruce Springsteen while we're driving. That's fascinating. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. My dad was not, my dad was more like Beatles, Paul Simon, uh, and yeah, then, Stevens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Bollywood, you oh, know, yeah. and like guzzles and classic stuff. But anyway, so Beastie Boys is like my first tape, literally, that I'm, I'm understanding, you know, how to put words together and this and that. And then, um, I think I went to like a mainstream hip hop phase. Like where Nelly was like my favorite artist. Oh, Nelly, we had, we had the, the Band Aid. The thing that was ill about Nelly, which I, I still kind of hold with me to this day, is like he had ability to make, you know, popular music, but it was melodic, and he also had like hard like beats. You know, like he yeah. he wasn't like he was a mix man. He was I, I agree with you. You know what I mean? He was like Ja Rule before. You know what I mean? Like he just did it really early, and to me that was just always dope. So I always looked at like how how you know how artists is able to do both those things. But then after that, I had a super underground era where I was like Def Jux and like Immortal Technique. Immortal you know what I mean? And like Little Brother was kind of like my way out of like the super underground. But like yeah, man, I've 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 consumed all eras of of hip hop. Ruckus. Avenue Radio. Yeah, man, I can see that. It's like you, we've been going immortal technique from Nelly to immortal Yo, technique. Yo, real shit, real, real. And I think that's like, I think that's to me like hip hop. You know, hip hop purists. You know how like there was a whole era where like you'd be in a forums talking about how ill immortal technique was and how whack, you know. Chingy was or whatever it is, and um, I mean, yeah, Chingy, well, he was a, <laughs> a little bit. Man, he yeah, was, exactly. I mean, look, everybody had their run, but like, you know, I think for me, just like always growing up in, in both those sides, because I was like, yo, hip hop is cool, but I gotta, if I'm gonna invest my life into it, I gotta figure out how to earn from it or you know how to make a living from it and like I had a lot of artist friends who were just like, nah, man, we gotta make the illest Dilla beats of all time. I was like, okay, cool, but. Can we say something that's just not rapping about rapping? You yeah, know, like, can we can we talk about life or can we create depth? And um, yeah, hip hop music, man, and and like I owe it to, you know, like I owe it to Black culture as well for like having like hip hop has so much confidence. You know what I mean? Like you had you had a, a group of people that had been through hell on earth in this country, but they just they flipped it and they made it. They owned it. You know what I mean? And they made it like more than cool. They they made it a source of power. You know, and and I think like as a brown kid, I was like, that's that I could relate to that. You know, not in the same way of like not having gone through slavery and things like that, but I could relate to feeling like the underdog and and finding a need to like flip that into a you know 
into your own story. Not for that. I think also even just going back to how we're talking about, let's say the Beatles and then the, the Bollywood and then the hip hop. Yeah. Being able to be able to be able to be right to be right, to be right in the middle of that too. Brown as a brown person. Yeah. It's a trip. Yeah, it's a trip. You're yeah. Like, Wait, I can listen to this and I can listen to that. So you're at that intersection anyways as well. Yeah, for sure. So for you then, you're talking about the money side of hip hop. That was something that you're saying is how could I actually monetize this? Yeah. I, yeah, I wouldn't. For me, it was like, how do I make a living off of doing the things that I love? That was something I was very passionate about. Earlier, yeah, man. So like, my my life growing up was marred by like just constant financial insecurity. Mm-hmm. So like, my my mom, you know, didn't work, and my dad, smartest guy in the world, you know, IIT top ten percent in India, like quiz champ. Like, his yeah. brains are out of the world, but he just didn't ever adapt to like the American way of like doing business and being cool with John and Tim and and Bobby and going to the games and you know drinking a beer and and talking shit like that's just not him um and I think for that reason he just wasn't able to ever like establish you know what I mean like himself professionally and financially despite his every like desire to do so like my dad is not he's just motivated by doing good work you know and solving problems and and I get a lot of that from him but I remember early on just being like in this situation where it's like the week before Christmas and and my dad gets laid off and I'm like, here we go again. You know, it's like somebody in some room somewhere is making a decision that's affecting my whole family. And it just seemed like I I couldn't wrap my head around it. You know, it just pretty helpless completely, you know, and you're like eight, 10, 12 years old. You're trying to help your parents. You can't do anything. You know what I mean? Like I remember you know trying to make christmas like cool for me and my brother because like everybody in my family was like ah you know whatever we don't feel like doing nothing and like that's a small you know that's a that's a small like i'll survive if christmas didn't go well you know what i mean like that's not a, a large like thing we went through but just like the insecurity you know and i see my dad you know commute two states you know 300 miles a day just to like not uproot the family and i just all that to me i was like man whatever i do i'm gonna make sure i get paid off of like owning that thing or being myself or creating revenue for myself without depending on somebody else because that calculus never made sense to me Mm -hmm. so kind of bringing it back to hip-hop jay-z was that first you know he was that first uh example of a young person of color owning his operation and and really telling his story the way he wanted to and, and just flipping a lot of things on his head so for me rockefeller was like you know that that was like that defined my mindset as like a 14 15 16 year old kid yeah, i'm a businessman. right this is before he said that right i was like oh he's a he's about his biz yeah. um and it was just ill to see how like jay basically leveraged his notoriety in music to create other revenue streams and other platforms and i was like yo this is interesting so naturally the thing that i decided to do at 17 was start my own indie label oh, with my own friend thing. yeah while we were still in high school I remember we sold like all our old video games, sneakers, anything that that we could find to like buy basic studio equipment yeah. and um and just started to like create music and and build like what would turn into like a, a mini, you know, a little indie label. And what was the name of the indie label? It's called Green Street Records. And is that where you were from the street No, nah, it was like Green Street was just like this this you like we had created like a utopia for ourselves like yeah. if everything was like going the way we want the place would be called green street um and i remember you know fast forward like we basically created an album 
by the time we were seniors in high school and it was like this super like if you listen to it now you're like I can't even hear like the mix like <laughs> what's going on here but uh you know we printed it up on CDs like I remember we you know scraped like $800 to print like 50 no like 300 CDs and then I also figured out how to upload music to iTunes at this time. So this iTunes, is like... Okay, so LimeWire, all that stuff is happening. It's, it's, it, this is like pre-LimeWire. Yeah. This is almost this is like MySpace, My, yeah. you know, but like digital distribution is like slowly becoming a thing. Um, and I'm like, yo, tell me I could figure this out myself. You know, so I'm like in that world of like, how do you, you know, expand something digitally and also have like a, a physical presence. Anyway, we, we sell all these CDs in our high school in like a week or two. Like everyone's Everything like, is everyone's coming up to me like, yo, can I get one? Yo, I'm, I'm hearing about this. Yo, we're listening to people playing in their cars. And I'm like, this is kind of weird. And I remember like we made like two racks or something. It was yeah. the most money I've ever seen, you yeah. know, in cash. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, it, 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 like, it was just like a proof of concept. Yeah. And I remember the first thing I did with that, I was like, yo, let's, let's reinvest it into merch. Yeah. And so then we made merch and those sold out. And then we said, oh, let's oh, throw the a show. It was like Green Street merch. Yeah, it was yeah. like an album cover, you know, whatever. We were selling t shirts now. And um, I was 18, you know, and and I had I had dedicated my entire junior, senior year to this. And my parents were like, what are you doing? Like, it's, you got to go to college. Like, yeah. you got to figure this out. Like, this and that. And um, I obviously, like, need and want to respect and honor my parents at the same time like trying to write my story you know and that was like a really challenging time because yeah. at 17 18 your parents don't think you have any idea what you're doing yeah. and my conviction was so real and I, we, I used to be in a studio until 2 3 in the morning on you know like a school night yeah. right come back home my mom was like what are you doing like in the morning you know I went through all that but I was just like nah just let me do this let me do this you let me do this yeah, somehow, some way, I always just knew like that something was gonna, you know, move in a certain way. And um, I remember I got accepted into NYU, which was like unexpected. That means that you were doing well in your studies. I held it down. Yeah. yeah, like I really like I remember senior year. I remember like really putting in time to like take care of those things. Like the SAT, like all me and my friends were all like failing that joint. I was like, I'm not gonna do that. Yeah. I'm going to lock myself in a room every weekend, take a practice test. Like I was like, oh, cause I, you know, I had to honor my parents and I remember I, I blazed the SAT. I was like, now what? Yeah. Um, I remember I got into Carnegie Mellon oh. um, and uh, I got into NYU and my dad was like, oh, you definitely want to Carnegie Mellon. Yeah. Great school, yeah. business school, engineering school. And I was like, nah, man, in the middle of nowhere, whatever. And I remember he took my NYU acceptance thing and like, not purposefully, he just threw, threw it in the recycling bin. Uh, like, he's like, oh, NYU? Like, nah. Because it wasn't like a traditional acceptance, like, packet or whatever. Yeah. Anyway, I was like, yo, come on. And I remember I found it, and I was like, yo, I think I got in. He's like, nah, you're not going. Long story short, convinced my parents to go to, to New York. And um, I told them that I would study business and finance. So I went to NYU, and I doubled in Stern, the business school. And I did study business and finance, but I also built my label on the side. At the same time. So that that's a whole different story. But yeah, so that's something that, um, you know, I'm grateful that they were like, All right, we're not going to stop you. Like a lot of brown parents might just be like, no. You yeah, know? but that would just severed the relationship. Yeah, I mean, even that, yeah, that whole that whole time was tricky because I was like, yo, I'm in school. I'm not like, like I'm, I need to like make money. Like I need to figure out how to like make a living, 
you know, more than just like money from a capitalist standpoint, just like figure out how to make a living. Like I'm studying all this shit like this had nothing to do with what I want to do. Um, and I remember that tension was very real. Like I wanted to take time off. I wanted to take time away. I just wanted to build my own thing, you know, and, and the moment that I got to, I did. So I graduated barely because by the last like two years of my college experience, this label was like really taking off. So like I hosted Wiz Khalifa's first show in New York. Like nice. I, I organized it, I threw it, and I put us on the bill. Like my act, yeah. Green Street, and uh, I remember like we had like, you know, more pe- we had more people at Webster Hall than Wiz did that night, just because like I was promoting. You know, like I was people knew that this was a thing, and that's all due respect to Wiz. It was just it was just like that's that's what I got to see kind of like in a lot of these artists careers is being there super early yeah. so I did stuff with Wiz and Lupe and Currency and Dom Kennedy and all these like Dom, yeah Dom all these guys super early and um and I remember by like my senior year like we were getting flown out to Florida to do shows and yeah. we would have like this entire east coast circuit that we were doing and we were making a little bit of money and you know, like we had merch and, and all these things and we were selling albums on iTunes. This is like 08, you yeah, know, when people were buying music. And so I'm like, yo, I have all this. Graduating is like second thought, you know, but my you know, my friends helped me. They literally, my friends did my homework. They passed in shit for me when I was like at JFK, like not gonna make the, like my people held it down. Somehow graduated and I remember I had a, a offer for this consulting job that like I somehow like winged. And I remember my interview, this guy was like, you seem to be doing this music thing on the side. Like I did my Google, I see you. Like if I hire you, what's what's gonna say you're gonna stick around? And I was like, no, 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 I'm gonna make a transition. Like I'm, you know, and I was lying to myself, I was lying to yeah. him. I worked this job for like two weeks, bro. <laughs> and I was like, yo, I can't do this. They're like, oh, we know. And I was living in Brooklyn with my boys in, in Bushwick in 08, in a very different Bushwick. And we had no money. You know, I had I had I had just quit my job. Like I had like five hundred dollars saved, rent is due. And that began that that moment was like the the phase two of my journey where I feel like I really, you know, came into who I was and literally just twenty two and just scrapped and, you know, did whatever we could to like pay the rent, eat crap food in the hood, but just like stay afloat. And I remember three months after I quit that job we were at like an open mic thing just performed this guy comes up to me he's like yo you want to go to japan next month mm-hmm. for a tour and i was like what yeah what and he's like yeah there's this thing tokyo two weeks on tour it's paid for everything is you know ready you love what you're doing i'm gonna license your music to this company out there and let's do it and i was like okay and then that happened so I was 22 with three of my best friends in Tokyo for two weeks, performing like 10 shows in 10 nights, something crazy. How were the shows? Popping, yeah. crazy, you know, like making fans, meeting people, you know, meeting girls. Like, and I just remember at 22, like that was such like a, a crystallization, you know, for my vision that had started, you know, five years ago, yeah. whatever, to be at that point. I was like, this is interesting. I might be able to actually get paid off of what I love to do, you know, and then that's like a very long-winded way of kind of how I got here a little bit. Damn, as those at 22 years old, it goes in this whole entire journey, and then that brings you to agent, the agency. So <laughs> yeah, the agency stuff definitely came later, but like that that's the inception of me understanding how to leverage like digital, how to leverage culture, how to leverage creativity and art and kind of create a business. 
Yeah, it was all encompassing. Yeah. Ruckus Avenue Radio. God damn, man. That's good. So when you came back from Japan, what happens then? It's funny because you come back and you're like, yo, we just went to Japan. We popping. Yeah. And you come back and everyone's like, yeah. what's up? Like, everything's regular here because yeah. nobody else saw what was going on in Japan, right? So, like, um, what happened was... I mean, there's a little bit of legitimacy legitimacy behind what we were doing. You know, there's yeah, more like, there's more fanfare, there's more energy. Um, but we knew, like, I knew that moment was important, and so we just went right back to work. And we put out like, at this time, you're putting out mixtapes on DJ Booth and all these websites that are getting downloaded. And uh, so we put out like, we came back from Japan, like, put out a project like three months later, and then we put out a, a second kind of EP album like three months after that. That project was called Endless Summer, okay. and that was like the seminal project for Green Street. Like that really like took off for us, so to speak. So, if I were to like search Green Street on Twitter back then, there was like people talking about my music that I didn't know. You know, like we were getting offers to go tour places like I didn't know. Um, for this music, were you the one that was bringing everyone together on the album, or were you singing or rapping? Yeah, man. So I was like, man. So the group was like uh, one producer and two MCs. Yeah. I was an MC, and my boy was an MC. Okay. And so it was like Tribe Called Quest 2015 or 20, 2012, my yeah. bad. You know, like that's how we saw it. It was like this mix of jazz, hip hop, mm-hmm. you know, modern, retro, like really fusing all that together. And and uh, it was like making music that we wanted to hear. And we would collaborate with people kind of in that world. I don't know if you're familiar with like Odyssey. Yeah. Um, so that's like, you know, someone that I've known forever. He was like on our first project. Yeah. Um, people like, uh, I'm going to forget all the other names. But like, this was um, this was just something that I really believed in. And again, it was like, who's this brown kid? Like, performing. There's no other brown faces. That's in all I was going to ask. You didn't see nobody in this Zero. Yeah. Zero. Now, I know like Anik was probably, you know, he was doing his thing parallel, you know, in, in around that time. And. I had a mentor, older guy named Brooklyn Shanti, who was like kind of like the first distillation of brown hip hop. He had to deal with Rockus, super important person in my life. So there were there were like a couple dots, but like we were on like we were on double XL. We were in the magazine double XL. You know what I mean? Like I never saw no brown person in double XL. I might be wrong. All due respect to everybody, um, I never saw nobody. Uh, we were like, you know, we were performing at like festivals in New York. Like we were like, you know, really cutting through. And I remember this project that we put out, Endless Summer. It was just such like an authentic distillation of like what we were about. It organically just took off. And like I remember, DJ Booth was like a big thing back then. And you'd rank, they'd rank like the most downloaded mixtapes of the month. And so it was. Us at number two, and it was G Easy at number one. Oh damn! And then it was us at number one, and G Easy at number two, and we went back and forth with G Easy for an entire summer. This, like, that's that's kind of where we were. Yeah, you know, and and you know, we went back out to Tokyo that year for the second time. So they loved you out there, huh? It was crazy. We had a, we had a distribution deal in Korea, where we were like number one on like local charts out there, and we yeah. were getting paid from streaming and stuff. Um, I got flown out to India to do a Bollywood film to like score it in part with Shanti who I mentioned and it was this like two, three, four year period where I was like yo this is like a dream come true it literally was Mm -hmm. the the subtext to all this is that I was born with with kidney failure and so throughout this whole time my body's breaking down and I'm like "Uh, I'm just gonna ignore it I'm gonna keep going I'm gonna ignore it 
And I remember I was like doing this routine checkup before one of my India trips and, you know, doctors taking a while to come out. And I'm like, I gotta go, come on, what's going on? And he's like, you know, he comes out, he's like, yo, I'm sorry, like, we gotta talk. I was like, okay, hurry up, what's going on? He's like, you have, you're an end stage renal failure. So basically you have like three months and, and until then you have to figure out what you're gonna do after that because your kidneys are gonna shut down. You gotta go on dialysis or you gotta go and get a transplant. Um, but you're not gonna be able to continue as is. And I was supposed to go to India the next week. And I was like, what? You know, like this, I was 24. Did I hear that properly? Like, where were we yeah, so I knew that I had, I'd grown up with a kidney condition, like we had always managed it, but it was one of those things that I never let get in my way. You know, it was just like, cool, that exists, but it's not gonna stop me from doing what I gotta do. And if I ever have to go out, I'm gonna go out the way I, you know, I wanna go out. And I was very, very intentional yeah, about that, back. nothing. Yeah. And um, I remember that he was like, you shouldn't go to India. You should, you know, go back to Boston, get with your family, go to the, right. you know, get like gear up for this next, you know, phase of your life. And I was like, okay. And then I went to India. I was like, I'm going to India, bro. Yeah. And he was like, what? I was like, God forbid anything happens. I get to see my family one more time. Yeah. I get to like close this loop. I get to go home. Yeah. And it was like a really risky decision. I was in India for six weeks. And every week I can feel my body breaking down. I can just feel like in the morning, you know, it hurts to get up. Your, you know, your body is just crazy. And I just like, I'll never forget that because it's one of those times where like when you put what you really believe in on the line, this is the ultimate line. This is my life, so to speak. It was either death or this. Yeah. And I was like, I'm going to choose this, yeah. which I think those moments helped me kind of develop a relationship with fear that a lot of people don't have. So for me, fear is like semi-non-existent because you want to talk about fear, that's when I was like fearful, you know, but I've already got through that. The moment you face death, oh my God. So everything else after that, you know, now I got like a contractor that doesn't want to do his job in, in, a, in a cafe I'm trying to build out and I got a client that's going crazy and I got, you know, but that's that not fear, cool. you know, like that's, that's all cool. manageable, yeah. So I feel like I'm talking a lot, but uh-huh. that happens. I'm 24 years old, I, I came back from India and I went straight like to the to the emergency room pretty much. Like it was a matter of a couple weeks. So how long were you in there for? So I went on like an emergency dialysis procedure, which was like the only thing that they could have done. And I was on dialysis for like five, six months while we were trying to find a kidney. Uh-huh. You were in the hospital the whole time or were we- Dialysis is this thing where you, you're in and out. So you go to the hospital like three days a week. They hit you with the drip. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. my friend's mom was on that too. Mm-hmm. Until she actually got a new kidney. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's exhausting. Man. It's she crazy. Be on it all night. So you mean like she it's crazy. Sleep. I had just I was just touring in India. Yeah. I was in Japan six months ago, and now I'm like staring up at a hospital. Yeah. You know, and like all these plans for music and all these things. It's out the door. Overnight. Yeah. Overnight. So that was a moment I think that. From a maturity standpoint, it really forced me to be like, yo, what do you, how are you going to deal with this? Because this is something you didn't see coming, you know? And it was this crazy up and down six month process. I'm just keep it short. Like eventually my dad got approved to be a donor. And yeah, he was disapproved at first. Multiple times he was, he was disapproved. They eventually approved him. I got a transplant in January of 2013. And... It was you and your dad. Huh? Yeah. 
How crazy oh, is that? Before the surgery, too, did you guys see each other? Yeah, I was living at home. I mean, I had to move back in the. I had yeah. to move into no, Boston. Like before the surgery, before you yeah, yeah, we did. we did, we did, okay, yeah, like yeah. We like, drove, we drove to, you know, we drove to the hospital together. So, so I'm gonna have a bit of you. And right, <laughs> right, and he still jokes about that, but I'm like, ah, whatever. I'm about to make you a million dollars, so you can't. You can't. <laughs> but we're about, we're about even. Um, and that was, uh, that was a real, you know, a real moment. I think like for my family to come together for, you know, just to like test what faith really is, you know? And, and at that time it's like, well, what do you believe in? You know, cause it all comes down to like this moment. Um, somehow, some way, man, by God's grace, we survived that. Um, and after the, after the surgery, then you're like, you're good. Nah, man, after surgery might've been harder than before surgery. Cause like your body is like, what the hell is this thing? And like the medication you got to take and, and the, the, like I couldn't walk, you know, cause in your entire body is paralyzed, like the half of your body is paralyzed. And then the doctor would be like, no, you need to walk every day. I'm like, I'm not walking. Yeah. Cause I know I just can't, like yeah, it was, you, you, know, you, know, you know, I was like, I just can't do it. And it was like this, you know, it was like how, you know, being 24, I remember my 24th birthday, like four months after that, I like finally walked up pairs, like a stairs. And I was like, okay, like victory, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, man, I just rehabilitated, came back from that somehow, some way, um, and then came back to New York maybe like six, seven months later, went right back into music. Isn't it crazy, though, after going through that experience that when you go back into music, it's, you appreciate everything? Everything. But that that was also a gift and a curse because I was going so hard. Uh, yeah, you like I got I got to make up from the lost time. And the people around me were like, yo, bro, we can't keep up. Yeah, that, that's a big thing, too, going too fast. Yeah, and that started to cause a little bit of a, a a rift, yeah, between and these are my best friends and business partners for like ten years, or eight ten years, and at this point I'm like, do y'all not want it as much? Because what I just went through, like yeah, I yeah. gotta get it, you know, like there's no option, and that basically was like the beginning of an end. So that friction slash like things were really happening for us like things yeah, were becoming yeah. realer and we were taking meetings and it was starting to become this thing and, and I think young people whether they admit it or not they have like a fear of success you know and I think that was like something that I was seeing in my partners what do you mean was, by that fear of success? a lot of people in their head in their head they want to be successful you know they, they have this idea of what it feels like to be super popping and, and be on but to actually do the work to get to that point and to actually make the sacrifices you have to make and to be out of your comfort zone for years on end, people don't want that as much, you know, and people don't want to admit that they're not willing to do that. Yeah. They want to tell you, man, I'm, I'm ready, I'm, I'm good to go, whatever we got to do, we going to do it. But when it comes down to, oh, we got to be in the studio for 12 hours, or we got to go meet with this guy at Rock Nation, or we got to go do this, and you got to be ready then it's like, uh, hold on, I, I wasn't ready for this. I didn't prepare. What you mean? You playing video games? You were in the club, you were going out? You were, you were like not focused? So that was like at 26, 27, having to go through that with your best friends, like the people that you have built this thing with, but, and then to finally get to a point where you're like, yo, we're so close. And then it started to crumble. And that like, that had me, you know, that really affected me. One of the hardest things I had to go through to this day was that, was that breakup of like, maybe music is just not, you know, it's not gonna work out. After everything that I had been through and after all like the, the, 
the demons I had chased off to get to that point and be like, wow, I think like, I think this is not going to work. You know, um, you had to let go. I had to let go. And looking back, that was one of the best things that happened to me. But at that time, it was like crippling. Yeah. Um, so you were saying letting go. So letting that go was tough. <clears throat> it was a combination of letting go of the work that you had done, letting go of the dreams that you had, and letting go of the people. people you know, it's and so maybe really, really tough. And for a long time, I was resentful of that situation. And I was like, damn, I worked so hard to get to this point, blah, blah, blah. And I felt like music was the way that I could tell my story. I didn't think about, well, there might be other ways to tell your story. Ruckus Avenue Radio. So, you know, I took a little bit of a, so we had this we had this last kind of tour as a group and like, it was just like, yeah, but it wasn't like branded as that. It was just like, I just knew it was our last tour, just the way things were going. I was like, yeah, this is like, I could, I could sense that it's coming to an end. You know, like the energy yeah, just was, yeah. it was just kind of off. And um, I went to India like the week after tour ended as like my yearly detox thing. And I, and I just spent time there being like, all right, what do I really want? You know, and I have parents now and I have a different obligation to my parents, you know, cause I'm like, I got a kidney in me. Like yeah. it's different now, you know, and, and realizing that music wasn't going to pay the bills or take care of the people that I love the way I wanted to was like a, a understanding and a, a difficult moment for me to be like, okay, this is what it is. And so fast forward a little bit, my brother and I, both he my brother moves to new york around this time mm -hmm. that i'm like rapping on music and he's like freelancing in some digital stuff and i'm i'm continuing so i've been freelancing this whole time kind of working with artists and brands and um digital strategy and all that stuff and you know we're looking at each other like oh you're working with that client well i'm working with this client let's come together let's yeah. do something together yeah. you know let's figure it out and that it was kind of the genesis of of grc of green room creative our agency and um, we went through multiple pivots, man. We, we started as like a local business agency, which went nowhere because local businesses don't care about no marketing. Yeah, they, they don't care about They have no, no patience. Try, try, went nowhere. Um, we, you know, we were like, I was like trapping out of my apartment for like months on end, just like just literally in my apartment all day long. Working from, you know, working, but trying to figure things out, pitching clients, making decks, you know, yeah. building this, building that. And I was telling you earlier for like, eight nine months like i didn't look up like didn't even literally didn't look up like the world is moving around me this is around the time that anik is really taking off and anik and i were like always in in touch and we would work on stuff he would come over my house play music and he was like yo please be a part of my operation like let's figure out how to work together i'm like bro i really want to but i gotta get my life together first yeah, you know, like, yeah, like I have, I, I couldn't give you the time that you need because I don't know where my check is coming, my paycheck, my rent is coming from. You know, I got a mortgage, I got a mortgage at this time. Like, I don't know what's happening. And, uh, you know, I mean, it was like, it was, we always stayed in touch. I always helped him with stuff. He'd always, you know, extend whatever to me. But it was like this moment where we're like, let's, let's revisit this when the time is right. So first nine months of GRC was like this, like, 100 hour week like insane time where it was just like learning failing winning you know and and building a cash flowing business just with like two people and like you know we started as like you know kind of just doing strictly digital marketing seo paid media yeah. um website this that kind of like basic route of services and then start to refine that over time like really focused on growth and on creative strategy and these things but I remember nine months after my brother and I were like, let's take a vacation for like seven days. Let's just 
We went to Portugal. Do yeah, do nothing. And I remember my ability to do nothing is limited. So I remember sitting on the sitting at the pool and I was like, let me just like let me just write something. I want to write an article about what I had just been through, you know, and kind of like what I had learned. Because at this point in time, like for the first time ever, my brother and I are making money. Yeah. And I think like we had taken our parents on a vacation or something and they were like, wait, what? Like, what are you guys doing now? Yeah. You know, and like I remember we were starting to have a little bit of cash, you know, in the, reserve. in the reserves to be able to make some investments to do some things with. So I just wanted to like kind of like distill what I had learned, you know, and, and communicate that. And I wrote this article on Medium. It was called like um, I built a six figure business in, in a year. Here are my takeaways. That zero followers on Medium. I just posted it. <laughs> we're in Portugal. We're not even in Portugal. We're on an island that's like in the middle of the Atlantic called the Azores. And I got, barely got cell service. And like, I whatever, post it. Let's, let's get back in the ocean. Let's get back on these bikes, do whatever we're doing. I get back to the Wi-Fi in the you know, next night or whatever in my hotel. And like, my phone is going crazy. Yeah. My friends are te- like, yo, bro. Like, you wrote this article. Like, all my friends are texting me about it. I was like, what? I opened my computer and this thing is just like gone. It, it just blew up. And I was like, what is going on? And it was just like this really interesting moment where I was like, there might be something in this personal brand, in this digital agency, in this cultural creative capital business that we've built. And I think that just gave me like confidence to be like, yo, reaffirmed go. it. Go. Yeah. It was like Green Street didn't work out. You took your L's. Like I lost a lot of money in Green Street. Mm-hmm. And this was the moment where I kind of shed that skin and I was like, okay, let's go. Long story short, <clears throat> um, we get, I'm just thinking of random stuff for, for GRC. Like I remember we ran into somebody who was doing like the Asian American outreach for Hillary Clinton 2016. And they don't really know what's going on about digital, all due respect. Um, he knows now, but back then they were kind of all over the place. We don't really know what's going on in politics. politics yeah, so it was like a healthy marriage. But I was like, oh, but we're hungry. Yeah, yeah, but we're hungry. And and I remember we, you know, we came up with the scope, and we built this original content, you know, piece for them. And we're like, this is what we're gonna do. We put some paid media behind it. This, that, and the third. They were like, great, whatever, sounds good. And I remember like the first like $20,000 wire transfer came in yeah. and I was like, well, this is interesting. Okay, like this is cool. We do, we create this piece of content. It was about like um, what Trump thinks of Asian Americans, right? And we kind of like did this freestyle man in the street video, blah, blah, blah. This thing takes off. It goes viral. Yeah. And the, the super PAC that we contracted with, they're like, wait, what? Like this is real and I was like yeah they're like holy sh-. like here's another 10,000 do something in. more here's another 40,000 yeah. you know and I remember kind of like that was like a really important client you know that we worked on not only built trust kind of like in this very like fast paced do or die world but it was also like yeah like we know what we're doing yeah. you know like we, we know how to tell stories online and that's all that people want that's what exactly what they want man dude um, we're coming towards the end of this, but I just wanted to say that, goddamn, that was a journey. Right? I know that, but again, we just got. I, I need like, a part two. It's like, man, I keep doing this on my podcast. Yo. I keep, <laughs> I keep over talking in part one. Not over talking at all, man, because that, that's the key. Is that's the precursor. Yeah. Right. It's like, this is what it needs to needs to be said for people to understand the journey. Right. Right. Because it's not all those failures, all those losses, all those moments of doubt, all those moments of being able to recalibrate. Right. Crucial. Facts, right. um, but no one ever talks about that stuff. So I'm gonna have to check out that article soon. <laughs> no right. doubt. Um, 
I know that again that your things are just moving now at a fast pace. This is how many years ago we did the Hillary Clinton? That was two twenty sixteen. Sixteen, yeah. So I'm guessing now that like the Kolkata Chai, there's a lot of stuff that's going down. There's a lot of stuff. Anything that you're doing right now that you want to just plug quickly? Um I think yeah, I think the biggest thing that that's like the most uncertain thing that we're doing right now is we're opening a chai cafe okay. in New York City. Um, I think the first you know brown owned chai company in this in this country, as far as I know. Yeah. Um, it's called Coca the Chai as a tribute to you know my parents and, and our hometown. Um, we're opening in August 2019. Hey. So if you guys are interested in you know anything that has to do with culture, with chai, with art, with creativity, definitely uh, Google Coca the Chai Co. Yo, thanks for making. Time and that was thank a, you guys. That was a, a, a thank you guys. Pleasure. Likewise, um, everybody. Uh, me and guys are signing off from the conversation on Rugged Down Radio Dash, and we'll see y'all next week. Peace. Ruckus Avenue Radio. Radio.